Hello, everyone. Welcome again to another episode of Brave Spaces Roundtable brought to you by INCLU, where we create brave spaces for life. I am your host, Dr. Dede Tetsubayashi, and here with me today is an amazing, wonderful guest that I'd like to introduce you to, Tanya Anesi of Baitnet Design. Tanya, please welcome and give us a little intro about yourself. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I am a designer by training. I come from the Stanford Design Program, and I was always curious about how to be doing design at the intersection of justice and liberation work. And so that's what has guided my whole career in co-creating liberatory design and starting Beitna Design, which is an Arabic word. It means our home, which is my studio. I grew up in Arkansas. I have two cats, and I like mint chip ice cream. Tell me a little bit more about the name Beitna Design. You said it means home in Arabic. How did you land on this name and why? Oh, yes. I was visiting my mother, actually, and we were brainstorming, like, what are parallel... I knew I wanted to be something Arabic so that it could connect to... That's a big part of my life story and what brought me to this work is being both Lebanese and American. And so we were brainstorming like, what's the best word for justice in Arabic? And what's the best word for liberation? And a lot of them, it was like, hmm, this will be hard to read for folks who don't (laughs) speak Arabic. So we played around and then we actually took a break from brainstorming. And I was just feeling my feelings with my mom, like, you know what, mom, it's been hard and this work is going to be emotional. And we're just like literally eating hummus in the kitchen. And my mom goes, hi, Beitna, which means this is our home. And she just meant like, feel it, daughter. Like, tell me what you need. Stuff your face with this hummus, like be as you are. And after the fact, I was like, oh, that's the name. (laughs) That's the feeling I want for my clients. It's just like, come on in. I know it's hard. Like, let's nourish. Let's break bread. Let's talk about what you're doing. That's beautiful. That's incredibly beautiful. And I know a little bit about your background and how that connects to being the name Beitna and then, of course, the design studio as well. But would you give us a little bit more information as to where you're coming from, what brought you to design in the first place, and then we'll take it on to liberatory design? Yes, totally. Ooh, what brought me to design? What a good question. I think I was in school and I knew that I wanted to do something that was focused on working in community. And I had no idea what that was. So there are physicians in my family. So I thought like, okay, that's pretty direct way of caring for people. Like, is that of interest? But I didn't feel like the culture of it was aligned to what I wanted to do. And then I saw someone in my dorm who was building a chair. And I asked her what she was doing. She was like, oh, this is my homework. I'm a product designer. And so then I thought, well, that's pretty cool. So I was just really curious about like building, making, creating. And then I found my way into that field just through being in college. I was really lucky that my college offered it. And I think what appealed to me about human-centered design, it just felt very culturally similar to how I grew up. It's like, of course you should talk to people who are most impacted. Of course we should reach out and work together. It just felt very like, yes. And also it felt very different from the dominant school experience, which is like, there's a right answer that you must achieve at a certain pace. Design was much more like, I don't know, you got to figure it out. Like you got to talk to people. Everybody has something to say. So it also felt as a learner, like a space that was very liberating to work in. I didn't have to be the expert with, you know, all the information. I just had to be able to contribute something and trust that others would too. 
I love that. It actually reminds me a little bit about my background, which is in, in cultural anthropology. I'm adopted mm-hmm. transracially and am also a first generation immigrant and a child of immigrants to the U.S. Also have fled political upheaval. Mm-hmm. But in, in growing up with my adoptive mother, she's an anthropologist and I followed in her footsteps. And I remember as a six year old, I had my little notebook because she had a notebook and I followed along on her interviews and it was a process of integrating oneself into the local community, into the culture and actually becoming a member of local communities so that the work was not extractive. And that was a very important aspect of anthropology and the methodologies that we were taught to use, of course, to, to not do harm and to not come in with our own preconceived notions about right and wrong and what was going to be the better answer or the solution for whatever the community was experiencing. But I remember sitting in classes and debating methodologies of like, what is right and wrong? And what is our role as anthropologists? And how can we work in a manner where we're not extractive and we're we're building relationships and that we're trying to ensure those relationships don't eventually get co-opted for example, by the U.S. government. And so we had a lot of questions around what does it mean to design? What does it mean to get invited to interview people? And what does it mean to use certain terminology like interview participants rather than research subjects? How does that impact the lessons that you're hopefully learning from the community? And your role isn't to be an impartial member of the community or an impartial knowledge transfer. Instead, we're human. And that's the first important fact that we have to remember. We're humans and we come with our own problems. And we cannot, as cultured humans, we cannot go into another culture and expect to bring that baggage of our own preconceived notions and expectations with us. So I would love to connect that to design and would love to find out for you if you could tell us a little bit about liberatory design and what separates it and the work you do at Betna from other design frameworks. And of course, this background that you've told us a little bit about how you got started with design. Would love to hear about the connections. Oh, yes. That was beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I love the visual of you with the little notebook being like, hmm, my observations. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And translating and being like, oh, wait, no, that doesn't mean that. That's not what she said. <laughs> That's awesome. Very cool. Thanks for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Liberatory designs. Yes. So I think I had a similar journey in terms of being in the classroom, being like, "Hmm, I don't know if that feels right. Like, I don't know why we're, there would be terms like, you know, you're going to go find the best nuggets from that community or we're going to go story mining. So it was this literal, like, let's extract. And that Mm -hmm. felt really bad and didn't feel right. And I had a lot of questions. I think over the years, the validation I got I mean, it took years to find other people who wanted to talk about this in the design world. They were out there, but we hadn't, I hadn't found them yet. But uh, there was a research piece I read by an anthropologist who's a Palestinian researcher and was talking about how working with Palestinians, particularly working in refugee camps, like how is research liberating and not extractive? Mm-hmm. And that was a hugely seminal piece for me of being like, yes, that's right. And it really hit home, you know, Palestinian Lebanese have a lot of overlapping history and language and food. So... When we first came together, the co-creators and I, there were five of us total, we were trying to explore what is the intersection of design work and liberation work. Like they each have their strengths. They each have either harm or, or challenges. Like how could they build on each other? And so we created the first version of liberatory design, the framework. 
And then I had been building lots of card decks. So I thought like, hey, what if we make it a card deck? So then I designed for us the card deck. And we all went back to our own organizations to figure out how would we create impact in our worlds. And so then at Beta, we built it out our own way in terms of what we think is going to be most impactful for our partners in the field and how we think it can be actionable. And so I would say some of the big differences of how we built it out at Beta is there's a there's some conversation and work around power and what is the role of the designer, right? The shifting from an expert who decides to a facilitator who opens space. And so there was a lot of around, how does that shift all of our tools, basically, and our mindsets if we're now facilitators or space holders? What does it mean to co-design? Like, how do we build an invitation? How do we offer trust? They may not want to work with us, but like, you know, what's the invitation or the relationship building? So a lot of tools around that. Some understanding and awareness around trauma and how that might show up in research, especially if we're working on these kinds of projects. And then we've built out a concept called safe to fail as well. Like, what does it mean to fail? Fail is an important part of design to learn. But how can we do it in a safe way in the sense that we're not risking people's physical, material, mental, emotional harm to learn, right? Opposed to the like, move fast, break things of Silicon Valley. It's like, let's learn by failing, but not at the cost of our people. So those are just a couple of snippets. But really, it's the biggest difference is notice and reflect, which is at the core of our process. Notice power, history, context, systems, reflecting on our relationships. So that's the core of it. And then how the tools have shifted over time. It's basically like every year we're like, oh, this could be sharper. We need this. We didn't know we needed it. So I would say it's kind of a big range underneath that umbrella. Wonderful. Wonderful. So in the process of crafting and designing and and setting up Bitnet Design and the design framework, you mentioned that at first, when you started to think about what liberatory design meant to you in terms of power shift and then con- design concept, like conceptually different from standard human-centered design, there weren't that many people that you were able to find who actually had been having the same difficulties or grappling with how do you do design in humanitarian, like human-centered, truly human-centered way that's not as extractive, along with David Clifford, Susie Wise, and the National Equity Project, Victor Carey, and Tom Malarkey, which parts of your personal intersecting identities were the most integral in its creation, if any? Whoa, what a great question. Do you mean like for me personally or as a group are intersecting identities? I would love to know about yours personally. And then of course, as a group, because having that group cohesion is probably critical to how y'all ended up with the framework that you came up with. Yes. Okay. I totally hear that. I think for me personally, growing up with two cultures, so my family are Lebanese, like I mentioned And we spent a lot of time back home and we were speaking Lebanese, Arabic, English, French. And so there was a lot of like translating, like you said, learning, picking up on the fly. And just at a really young age, I think it was important for me growing up in Arkansas to see that like there isn't a way to live. Like even within Arkansas, within Lebanon, there are a hundred ways to live. And so that created, I think, when it came to the creation of liberatory design, what it built in me is like a real curiosity and a real understanding that people will want to use this in millions of ways and they will adapt it in ways we can't even imagine. So like, how do we play that translator role of making this one as accessible as possible? Like not assuming it's just a US lens or not assuming that people will use it the way I want to use it. I think that was one of the things I contributed for my intersectionality. 
And another piece probably is part of that translation also, I think, was my role in my family was like, get to the point. So be like, what do you need? What does it mean? What is it going to do for us? <laughs> and so I think that's another thing. It's like, how are people actually going to use it? It should be physical. Like, what about this language is confusing? How can we make it clearer? So I think that's the other piece of being a translator child. (laughs) 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 Yeah, like, tell me what we're trying to do here. Like, make it easy for me to engage. And so that was also my lens in in amongst everyone else's contributions. Like, how do we make this practical and real and helpful? Great. And so when, when it comes to those intersecting identities, talking about translation, obviously I would say that you have to put yourself in the center of the experiences and to bring in your lived experience of being bicultural, multilingual, living in, in what I call multiple identities or fractal identities, because depending on the the sphere of influence that you're in or the circle that you're in, you have a different aspect of your identity that you can pull on when you're with your family. You're a Lebanese, you're Lebanese American, you're a French speaker, you're an Arabic speaker, and, and it's the amalgamation of all those things. And then being the bridge, literally, between multiple cultures, you're doing the translating with your language, with your body, with your experiences with those who are around you. Can you speak a little bit more about the people who you ended up co-founding with? Can you talk about how they were able to bring in their multiple identities if they had any? What role that played in in thinking about designing with rather than for an identity or an intersectional identity that we may not that we may not have lived or may not have experienced. Mm, I love that. Okay. And let me know if I'm not answering it. You can correct me. Okay. (laughs) If I misunderstood, but oh gosh. Yeah. In those early days, I think I had had questions, like I mentioned, since I was a student that I like would bounce off of other people and they were kind of like, nah, like, I don't, that's not interesting. Or like, that doesn't really make sense. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Or like, you know, if something went wrong, that was just a one-off project or that's a bad designer, but it doesn't mean, you know, there's anything wrong with the process. So then in 2016, I started talking about it with David And then I read an article about Antoinette Carroll from Crave Reaction Lab. And then we saw a medium piece with Christine Ortiz, Michelle Molitor, Caroline Hill. And it was like, wait, wait a minute. So there was all these signals. And so we all just called each other. And we started meeting monthly, actually, to just be like, what are you trying? What are you learning? So that was a huge transition point, I think, in being like, no, this is real. This is worth pursuing. Like, there are other people with similar questions. There are other people who have been working on it for years before us we can learn from. And liberatory design was sort of a similar combination, I think. Our intersectionalities varied in the group greatly by age, type of work we've done, whether we had like more depth and time spent in design versus equity worlds, whether we've worked in big systems or small systems. So between us, in terms of experience, there was a huge range. Mm-hmm. There's some racial diversity on the team. There's some gender diversity. And so I think coming in, what was so exciting about the collaboration is that just ideas were sparking everywhere. It was like, we struggle with this. And it was like, oh, design's so good at that. Like, look, look, look. And then they'd be like, oh, but design doesn't talk about, you know, unintended consequences or the history that got us here. It's like, yes. Oh, we're so hungry for that. So I think it was so exciting because everyone had like fire to add to the cauldron. I don't know where I'm going yes. with this metaphor. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, everyone throws in a doing? bit of their spice. and <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, which was super helpful. And I think, you know, I'll speak for myself being the youngest on the team. 
there were a lot of either thoughts that I had that I hadn't applied yet and they could speak to like in the system is how I've seen it work. Or they could also conversely add things that they had seen time and time again, but I could add niche examples like, no, I've seen people do it other ways. Like this is some new stuff I'm seeing. So I'll pause there. I could go on forever. But yeah, I feel like I love that enough difference for it to be really fruitful. Yes. And to, to actually then be able to say, we've tested this, we've lived this. Not only have we learned, learned, applied learned experience, we've also applied lived experience and we've applied this co-creation, co-designing process. We've actually tested it with ourselves so that it's a concept that we know we can take to, to others and, and either teach them or invite them to, to be participants in co-creation. I love it. Totally, totally. We're noticing reflecting all over the place. In our own meetings, it was like, how is our collaboration a model of liberatory design? We're pulling mindset cards in meetings and like, anyway, yeah, nothing's perfect, but it's, it's been a really cool space over the years. Yeah. Okay. So you are quoted as saying, if we are designing in status quo ways, we're going to create status quo outcomes. Can you tell us what to date has been your greatest win in disrupting the status quo? Oh, yes. I would say reflecting on this, I think one of the things that I'm most proud of and that it will probably have, who knows, my impression of what would create some of the biggest impact is been our contributions to the larger movement of how design is shifting. So whether that's putting liberatory design out there, speaking events, working with clients, writing, it feels like Back in those early days, we were super niche. I went to a design conference in Providence and I shared that I wanted to talk about these topics and they were like, yes, let's get you this big room. It's going to be awesome. And then like 15 people came. (laughs) (laughs) It was great. I mean, I had a great time. I was like, these are my people. They need to be here. I need to be here. But it was very like niche for a long time or people Mm -hmm. would say in the design field like, oh, that's cool if it's a project about like racism, you know, Mm -hmm. versus like, no, this is how we do design. Uh, racism is everywhere. That's a, that's a different conversation. But <laughs> we've designed racism. So now let's figure out how to undesign it. <laughs> exactly. So I think to see how that has grown, like, right, like we found those initial people like, oh, my gosh, what are you working on? I'm so excited to work with you to meet you. And then there came, you know, then we learned about the Design Justice Network. And then we saw this article that had been written about decolonization of design in the UK like years before. And then, so like slowly it started to grow, but it was very much like we all know each other. And now it's gotten to the point where I feel like it's a tidal wave, right? Like people I've never met are liberatory design studios over here and equity designers over there. And now there's restorative design and there's like thousands of different kinds. And to me, you know, companies are calling, design firms are calling and asking for like, we want to practice differently. So that was literally my dream when we started liberatory design is like, how could we make harmful or status quo versions of design obsolete? So that's not like this is a niche way to practice, but being equity aware is good design. So if we have contributed in any way to the movement, that is by far like my biggest accomplishment, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is a pretty big accomplishment and something you can be truly proud of. It is something that I also strive for in my work and my work has been centered specifically on product design. And when I say product, obviously encompasses technical products, physical products, but also non-physical products like education, growing, like 
and training and raising children and raising the next generation and instilling values. We need to actually create a step-by-step process through which we're thinking about all the ways we are as humans with our biases, of course, get instilled into the programs, the products that we create. And if we're not questioning our motivations, if we're not thinking about the outcomes and the impacts unintended or intended, then we're not truly great designers, great product managers, great engineers. And it's been something that I've always said that in order to be a great product manager or a great engineer, we need to get to the place where we are designing with accessibility, inclusion, equitable outcomes, non-discrimination is the bottom line or the, the, the floor, the product floor into our product processes so that it's not the separate but equal aspect of product design, product management, engineering. It is literally just product and engineering. We shouldn't have to think about what does it mean to make this product more inclusive? What does it mean to make it more accessible to more people? That should be the foundation and the core. Why are you making this product in the first place if it's not inclusive, if it's not accessible, if it's not available to as many people as possible, and if they're not having positive outcomes and experiences using what you've created, what you've birthed into the world? It shouldn't exist then. Yes, but- that is hundred percent. It's like it's like people view the status quo as okay and acceptable, but it's like no, the status quo is designed for exclusion, designed for yes. harm. So if you ask yes. someone, why are you designing this for harm? They'd be like, huh? I'm just doing it the normal way. But it's like, okay, normal way equals harm. So, <laughs> so. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, so. What are, what are some of your greatest challenges or what have been some of your greatest challenges in divesting from whiteness or white centered status quo? Um, I will pause there. Well, let's make a three hour podcast about this. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Multi-series. Please come back. (laughs) Oh my God. So good. I would say the hardest things for me personally have been dealing with urgency and perfectionism. Mm -hmm. And I think with urgency in particular, I read this article once someone shared it with me actually from the equity design collaborative. That was the difference between urgency and a false sense of urgency. So, and I think so much of our work culture is this false sense of urgency, right? Real urgency is like, listen, our people are out here getting hurt. Like people are dying. Like people are in cages. We got to do something. And that is like liberation work. And then there's false sense of urgency, which is like, we're staying up late. We're stressed. We're not eating. We're working through pain because we decided there's going to be a product lunch this day. Yeah. And it's like, we got to be first in market. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that's something that I struggle with internally is honestly doing that in my own company of like, I want it done by this time. But then if I sit there and we're feeling all the stress of getting it out, like even a newsletter deadline recently. And it was like, okay, we can work on the long weekend. And then it was like, wait a minute, why? No one is checking what day we send our newsletter. If people get it the day after, it's probably the same. So there's, we're constantly trying to undo it, right? Because like we'll work, work, work. And then every time I take a break, I'm like, whoa, half of this does not need to be this way. So that's been hard for me mm-hmm. of like, where do we push on the real urgency and where is it, you know, needs to happen at its own pace. 
And then perfectionism for sure. I think, oh man, from my early days in Arkansas is like the way you protect yourself is to be perfect, right? Like don't mess up. Like the way that you succeed will be school and getting out and doing this and that. And like, if you mess up, you'll lose the job or the scholarship or whatever, like whatever it is. And so I think I've brought that into my company and I still do this, but especially in the early days, we would totally over deliver and like over the top, every detail perfect. And I remember my web designer, Jennifer Hennessy, who redid our brand recently, she asked me to go back and interview old clients about what was most valuable. I was like, you love that we customize everything, right? They're like, no, that didn't actually matter to us. I was like, what? Why am I spending all these hours perfecting and customizing? So I've just noticed in myself, like, I have to have 15 layers of value that I'm offering at all times and I can't drop the ball anywhere or else the whole company is going to crumble. And it's like, wait a minute, there's no data to support that. Like the risks of, you know, leading as people of color is real. But I think like, if I literally look at like, who do we trust to be our partners? Who, like, how do they behave? What do they expect? It's not true. So I'm tired just thinking about it, but those are the two biggest ones for me. (laughs) Can I ask you what's on? Yes. Yeah. I wanted to ask you how you feel if you're comfortable sharing. Yes, I was actually going to also talk about this fallacy of speed and perfection. It's actually something that I'm still struggling with in terms of perfection internally, personally. And I constantly have to remind myself and thankfully I have wonderful therapists and coaches and, and a great support network who remind me regularly that there's no need for perfection. And yet, I'm only just now starting to recognize that this need for perfection is borderline OCD for me. It's not something that's internally generated. It is a product of my upbringing. It is a product of my enculturation. It is a product of how I have been raised to be a dark-skinned Black woman in the U.S. in particular. I mentioned before that I'm a transracially adopted. My adoptive mother is white, born in Texas, I in the US, and she speaks multiple languages. But imagine being in the Midwest, growing up with a little, like two little black girls with a white mom. Mm-hmm. I have a disability. I have, I have sickle cell anemia. I have this genetic illness that is life threatening, which forces me into mm-hmm. the hospital on regular occasions. And the racism that I experienced as a child taught me that if I did not move and behave in particular ways, I would either not be believed because of the way that I looked, because I either had an accent as a child, I lost that accent very quickly, And because of the expectations of what it meant to be a little black girl child in the Mm -hmm. U.S. I didn't come into this country with those same expectations and those values at all. And only Mm -hmm. now am I starting to understand and disentangle what are the voices that are actually mine in my head that are controlling me and forcing me to try to be perfect and chase this perfection that is ever forward moving and never achievable versus what is it that I can do that my counterpart will understand and know that it is my best effort and love that because it is my best effort. What is it that we can do together? And what is it that I am imposing on them 
assuming that they are assuming that I will be perfect and I will be fast and I will deliver immediately. They don't necessarily think that, but in my head, that's what I assume because that's what I've been taught. Working in Silicon Valley, working in corporate, it is a million times worse because those voices in my head are actually voices external to me. Maybe not saying those exact words, but the voice, the, the, the words may be different. The tones may be different, but the looks, the expectations, the performance evaluations, they're there. And it's a constant struggle every single day. Oh my gosh. I'm feeling that so much in my body. Thank you for sharing that. That's like, here we are. Look at what we inherited. And now it's the undoing. And some days I feel like how liberating that I can undo this. And some days I'm like, oh, I'm so tired. Why? <laughs> I'm so tired. Why? Yes. Can't I just put it down for a bit and like, I don't know, go swim and yes. Oh, wait, no, I can't do that. Dang. <laughs> I will say since I've gotten COVID, since I've come back to work, I've taken a nap every single day. Yes. And I was Tell like, me. interesting, like how I gave myself permission once I was like on the books feeling ill. It's like, oh, I guess I could nap every day if I needed to and still run this company. <laughs> <laughs> but it's amazing what we still do being founders and owners of our own companies. It's amazing what we still repeat unconsciously. And what we still expect of ourselves, the standards that we hold ourselves to that are unachievable. And we're also imparting those same exact values onto the people who are working with us because they see how we behave. I don't take breaks. And yet I'm I'm like, oh, wait. Mm. Mm. (laughs) I'm supposed to be taking a break. I'm supposed to be resting. Yes. This two week period is my holiday. And what am I doing? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. More work. More work, please. (laughs) So I would actually love to follow up with how do you remind yourself regularly that it is okay to divest? And then what does your body do? Oh, my goodness. Well, almost on the flip side, my body will revolt if I don't pay attention. It's like, oh, rash on my face. Oh, pain in my back. (laughs) My body will literally be like, hello, I'm calling on you. So it makes it apparent that it's displeased. And then, yeah, like you've said, the the therapist, the support networks, even just the partner that's just like, hey, you've been feeling pretty down for like a couple weeks. What's going on? I'm taking a sabbatical for the first time this year, taking all of July off. Yes. Yes, so I'm trying. That's something that came up with my leadership coach. It was just like, yeah, obviously you could do that if you want. Like someone who even is just helping you paint that reality. Yeah, but I, I'm really feeling what you're sharing. And I think that has been a leadership growth for me too. I, I think also even working with Clancy, she's our liberatory design strategist. One time we were co-working together in person and she shared something like, oh, these co-working days can be really intense because we don't stop for lunch. And it never occurred to me. I was like, oh, that's bad. Like the one day she works with me in person and one of my modeling that like we don't eat, that we don't stop. So I think a lot of it is outside accountability. And then my body is my inside accountability. I'm so happy you're listening to your body. I have literally just started. (laughs) Literally just started. Love Um, it. 
I, I, uh, because of my illness, I usually have pain on the daily. So I have chronic pain and my mm-hmm. way of dealing with chronic pain has always been, it's white noise. I ignore it, but mm-hmm. that chronic pain has actually not been chronic pain. It has been my body telling me you're, you're hurting me. Stop hurting mm-hmm. me. And mm. in my head, I've just been like, oh, no, today's just today's a bad day. Well, let's crank up the white noise a bit more and ignore it. Have been using my own body as the blocker between mm. what I'm able to do and just pushing on through. It's the dam. And now the dam is breaking and she's not happy. And I'm like, oh, oh, I, oh. And I'm starting to literally receive notifications from her in the moment. The moment I step over a boundary, the moment I step over a value, the moment I'm like, I'm about to say yes to something that's not good for me. I feel intense pain. And I'm like, oh, I think, I think it's time to listen. Mm. It's time to listen. So, oh my gosh, thank goodness for these bodies that keep us together. I love you body <laughs> yes. yes that's what i was saying during covid i was like look at you good job look at you fighting this virus i'm so proud of you and then of course okay well this is not a podcast so i guess everybody's gonna hear it now but i was just gonna share with you we can take it out <laughs> no, it's okay i went with my partner to see this amazing acrobatic show of people who used to be formerly cirque du soleil and just like absolutely mind-boggling performance And then I went home and cried because I was feeling so weak with COVID. I was like, my body can't do that. And I was just feeling a lot of things that, you know, we're all temporarily abled. And I was just feeling so much of like, oh, this is something that like I need to learn from and feel my way through. It has been, yeah, very interesting. But I'm really inspired by how you're listening to your body. It's like, I... It's like there's another person in there, like your higher there, self. There literally is. <laughs> and I've apparently just shut her down. And she's like, nope, I'm coming out. That's okay. right. You're old yeah. enough now. You're an adult. You should be a proper adult. You're going to be 40. You better listen. That's right. <laughs> it's like you got something. the resources. You got the time. Like now there's no excuse. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, goodness. Okay. Well, taking it a little bit back to, to our, our day to day work and trying to function in a white centered status quo. What role, if any, does data play in liberatory design? And what are the biggest challenges that you have when data comes into play? Mm. I would say data. When we've been working with partners, this is something that I have learned a lot from them of like, what role does data play? And I would say in really huge systems, or we're talking about like, let's design with community and that community is a million people or more. I know you know a lot about this. Data can be helpful to just help us know even where to start. Or if we're looking at inequity and disparity, like, is there some cross-section of intersectionality where we know people are getting hurt or they're not being served? So I feel like Data I describe as like showing us where to flash the flashlight. Just it's like it's like giving us a signal mm-hmm. of where to start. So it might tell us what's happening, but not why it's happening. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And then so much of the, you know, your background, the, the qualitative research, the exploration, that can tell us more why and help us say, okay, if this community is being hurt, but they're incredibly diverse, like why and how and all. So I think data is a way to, in a complex system, like help us see more than we would and help us know where to focus. Mm-hmm. And then on the flip side, the value of the qualitative work is, yeah, like I said. Mm-hmm. So I feel like they interplay with each other. And I think the main challenge is when people use only data or data to replace design mm-hmm. and say, like, they'll jump from, I see this pattern in the data, therefore the solution is this. Mm-hmm. And then it creates a cycle of, like, no, that didn't work. Why is the data still happening? Oh, something else happened to the data. Oh, no. So we try to encourage people to not make it the absolute truth, but rather, like, a starting point. And on the flip side, you make a design, you put it out in the world, you need to know at scale, like how it's doing and real talk, how it's impacting people. So I think they're very good friends, but maybe an isolation can be weaker than they are together. What's yeah. your take? How do you work with data? So <clears throat> we consider, and I personally consider everything to be data and data isn't necessarily oh. negative or positive. And I, I think that's, that's something that's, not necessarily believed in Silicon Valley and a lot of corporate environments, because especially in tech, people want to say we are using, we're making data di- driven decisions. Unfortunately, they have a ton of data, <laughs> but they don't know what the data is actually telling them. So they have a bunch of information. They don't necessarily know how to interpret that information and they don't know who they need to have to, to who they need to partner with to understand that data. So it has to be a, a combination of people with qualitative skills and quantitative skills. You need to be able to understand, of course, the percentage, the numbers, the sheer concrete numbers of what is happening where. And as you said, then you need the folks who have the understanding, whether they're part of those communities or in partnership with those communities that are impacted, whose data you've collected to be able to shine a light and understand, okay, so something's happening here, but what exactly is happening? Is this something that we're causing to occur? Or is it something that others on the platform are causing to occur? Is Hmm. this between person and person on the platform? Is this something that's introduced the product creators? Or is this something that's being introduced based on the the actual data that we have? Are we collecting the right kind of data to answer the kind of questions that we're asking? So for me, data is, it's neutral, but the context is everything. And who looks at that data and the story that they tell with that data is the critical piece because most people want to use data to already confirm a preconceived notion rather than coming into a scenario thinking, let's bring everybody together. Let's bring researchers, designers, policymakers, security people, engineers, product folks, like everyone, the community members who are actually impacted to take a look at whatever we think we're seeing and then have a conversation about what is it we're seeing? What can we do about it? And is it something that we actually need to do something about? Is it telling us that we're doing something wrong or is it telling us that we're doing something that we should continue to try to push forward and do more of? The challenges that I have Hmm. are the people who want that data. So there are power dynamics in every environment that we walk into. And 
mostly the people who are experiencing the outcomes of the product from whom we're gathering that information don't necessarily care about the data. They will continue to give us feedback if we are receptive and if we're actually partners. If we're not, they won't share anything with us except the bare numbers. But everyone who is in a position of power, most usually executive leadership or those who are making decisions about what happens with that information, don't have the qualifications to interpret the information. And yet they want all of that information. And when Mm. you don't give it to them, there are meltdowns and temper tantrums. And it's incredibly important to separate who has access to that information because they're key components of people's personal identities, private information, and vulnerability encoded into any kind of data that you have. And if you have the group who is in the, let's say the, the majority group or the normal status quo group who also happen to be the ones who are decision makers and leaders and the ones with the power to determine what the outcomes are to or the impact on the communities who are actually already being impacted by that collection of data. It's like putting sensitive information in the hands of the people who are going to use that to tear you down. And so Mm -hmm. it's very important for me to keep that information separate and to work with those who actually don't have preconceived notions about what story that data is telling us and are coming in with curiosity and openness and transparency to work with the people who are providing us that information to then decide what can we do with this information? What exactly are you trying to convey to us? And are we actually getting the message? If we're not receiving the message, that's where we need to focus. And why are we not Mm -hmm. getting that message? That's fascinating. I think it it speaks so much to the complexity that is required in human systems, the way you were describing that of like who and what and what could it mean and the protection layers. And I think that is where it clashes what I've seen with urgency. Like we have the data. Okay, decision made. Yes. And then it's like, oh no, I've been in that situation before where we did some research and then we gave it to folks. They're like, okay, cool. We executed. Bye. And we were like, no, what have we done? It's not ready. <laughs> yes, there needed to be like five steps before that. So I appreciate the way you think about that. I think, ha- have you found partners that when you structure it that way, they're aligned? Like, yes, I see why we want to do it this way. Or are folks still pushing back? Okay. Folks still push back. But yes, we do also find partners, especially if we have spent the time to give them the, the, the context of why we're separating that information and how it's going to in the end benefit them if they're not the ones directly connected to that information. But there's always pushback because people want to know. They're like, well, I need to know. I, well, if I don't know, how can I make a decision? For example, if you're looking at information that you don't have the complete context for, you're going to make conclusions that are erroneous, that are not correlated to that information. So you're going to be like, oh, these people, ABC people are actually doing this. So we need to focus only on those people rather than thinking about the holistic picture. Actually, everyone is part of this entire systematic process. So if some people are experiencing harm, we need to figure out why those particular people are experiencing harm and work with those people to figure Mm. out what's going to benefit them. And 
by extension, the larger support group around them, not just solve for everyone who's going to be able to equally access whatever information you have. Yep, I hear that. Wow, fascinating. People like to, I mean, we're, we're humans. We make faulty correlations and, and, and jump to, to erroneous conclusions all the time because we don't know what other people are actually trying to tell us. And if we're not in a safe space, in a place where we feel as though we are in a place of trust and can be vulnerable, we're not going to, we're not ever going to be able to, to build the, the relationship whereby we can share information back and forth and lead with intentional curiosity. Oh man. I feel like it just brings me back to like how complicated it is even for two humans to understand each other. I feel like yes. I've had some conversations recently with my partner is like, I thought when you said that, that you meant this about me. They're like, not at all. No. <laughs> like, oh man, one to one. It takes so much work to understand each other. But that's that's the joy of it too. It's like that's why we do this work, you know. <sighs> all right. So Tanya, it's been lovely. I would like to I invite you to share any information that you would like to about upcoming work or any any information that you'd like to share with with the audience about in a design or about yourself and let us know if there's anything else you'd like to, to, to share with the audience as a, as well, a conclusion. Rad. Okay. Yeah. Well, I would say we're launching some free community events to talk about what is liberatory design and how, yes, coming up yes. this summer led by Quancy on our team. So I just invite people on our website. They can join our newsletter. There's we're always talking about, I'm doing a presentation remotely for a group in Sydney that's open to the public. We're presenting at the Allied Media Conference. We're doing a session inspired by Octavia Butler. So if people want to come talk about like the future, the liberated future. So there's tons of events that are always happening. So we just invite people to join the newsletter. And if they want to understand like how Baitna might be able to support them with redesigning products or programs or services, of course, they can also reach out to us on the website. But we just want as many people as possible to have access to liberatory design and to make it their own. That's our dream. Fabulous. Thank you for sharing that with us. And as usual, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I had a blast. I really appreciate you. I hope you come back. (laughs) Any day.